please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. And kids, if you're using a Bible that we've given you, or if you grabbed a Bible off the back table, you can turn to page 831, and that's where the reading will begin. Before we read the text, I, I want to note how this text begins. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. This is kind of a summary statement for the entire book of Matthew. And this marks a transition from these parts of Matthew that have contained long teachings of Jesus to the what we call the passion narrative, the story of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and then resurrection. So this passage we're reading is kind of that transition point where Jesus where we turn from hearing Jesus preach in places like the Sermon on the Mount and then the Olivet Discourse now to his dying on the cross for sinners. So just keep that in mind as we read. Listen to God's word from Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In putting this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. As we begin today, I want to spend a good deal of time just looking at verse 2 of this passage. This little statement of Jesus you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, I don't know if you read this passage ahead of time, but I wonder how much time you spent on Jesus saying, after two days the Passover is coming. If this were a fictional book, you might think that uh, the author is just kind of including this little tidbit so we kind of have a time stamp. And maybe even that's why Matthew would have included it in this historical account. He just wants us to know when this thing is happening. It sounds like it could just be sort of something we're to quickly pass over. And maybe that's how you read it. I think that's what I did the first time I read through this passage. But something more is going on here. Jesus doesn't waste his words. And he explicitly connects the coming Passover with his crucifixion. 
In two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's connecting Passover and crucifixion. And he's giving his disciples and us a giant clue about the world-shaking significance, the meaning of his suffering. To understand this significance, we need to remember a bit about the Passover. We studied this during our study of the book of Exodus, which was at some point in the last few years, but I couldn't tell you when. Time seems to have vanished in terms of a concept, hasn't it? But we studied the book of Exodus, and we saw that the Passover was this great festival of God's redemption. In Egypt, during the Passover, the firstborn sons of Israel were saved, and they were saved through the substitutionary sacrifice of a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. So the whole people of Israel were, were set apart during that meal as they ate these lambs in their houses covered with blood. You know, later in the, the rituals of Israel, it's only the priests who get to eat the sacrifice, typically. But in this case, the whole nation eats the sacrifice. And in that way, the whole nation is set apart as a priestly nation that are called to, to show God's holiness and mercy to the world. And so as they eat safely in their houses, the Lord passes through the land and the houses that are marked by the blood are passed over, but the firstborn sons of Israel, of Egypt, are struck down. The firstborn sons, even of the livestock, are struck down. Back in Exodus, when the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that were that would go together, they were first instituted, God takes special time to, to tell the people of the meaning of these of these feasts and to tell the people how to pass down these traditions to their children. So in Exodus 12, 24 through 27, he says this, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So the Lord gives instructions to them about how to, how to remember these events so they can remember the great salvation of the Lord. A chapter later in Exodus, there's something similar as he tells them how to remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, he says, When in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to them, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt." This passage is saying that this redemption, this great work of salvation was like a tattoo that permanently marked God's people. This gave them their identity. This is who Israel is. They are the, the saved by God through Passover people. They are the people that God led out of slavery by his strong hand and he made them his very own. He bought them and that moment he redeemed them. 
from slavery. So they are both the people called in in Abraham, their father, and they are the people redeemed by God's gracious and mighty act in Exodus. And this Passover is also sort of the, the entry point of the entire system of sacrifices that we find in the law of Moses. And this system of sacrifices isn't just, again, some sort of rituals to go through. It's, it's meant to teach them about the holiness of God and God's love. It shows them that because God is perfect in holiness and righteousness, that sinners can't stand in God's presence. It's just a fact of God's holiness that sinners can't approach him. But God graciously makes a way for people who are impure and unholy, who who by nature are unfit to come to God, those people can come near to God and God can dwell in their presence through these sacrifices that God has prescribed. So God has made this way for people, for sinful people, to come to him. Sinners can enjoy fellowship with God through these sacrifices. And so the Passover provides the clearest preview of the gospel in the Old Testament. It proclaims God's mercy and holiness, that God draws near to his people in salvation, and he makes a way for impure people to fellowship with him. It's a great sign of his grace, salvation for sinners through the blood of spotless lambs. But as wonderful as the Passover was, at the same time, we see that it wasn't really sufficient to save anyone. The author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could not actually pay for sin. The Mosaic Covenant didn't change the hearts of anyone who belonged to it. And to see the truth of this, you just have to read the rest of the Old Testament story. right? Within days of being delivered... God's people make an idol out of gold, a golden calf, and they worship it. They almost immediately corrupt the worship of God. Now, we see sometimes in their history they did observe the law outwardly, but just as often they completely failed to keep it, and they worshiped the pagan gods of their neighbors. And even when they did observe the law, the prophets tell us that they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Or they tried to turn the the temple and the sacrifices into kind of lucky charms, believing that as, as long as they did these religious rituals, they would stay on God's good side, even as they did evil to each other or served false gods. And we see this tension within the law of God in Christ's suffering itself. We see that throughout the passion of Christ, the, the religious leaders of Israel They go through this sham trial of Jesus. They crucify God's Son and the Messiah. And yet they do this while ostensibly trying to keep the rules of Passover. We see this even in verses 3 through 5. They they plot how to secretly arrest and kill God's Messiah, but in a way that won't upset the crowds who are there to worship God. So as great as a, a sign of God's love and redemption that Passover was... The Passover didn't save anybody. It couldn't heal the scar of sin that marked the human heart. But the Passover pointed to something that could save. The Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
In this short sentence in Matthew 26, 2, Jesus is teaching us how to understand his death. His death is the fulfillment of what was pictured in the Passover. The Passover back in Egypt was a sign that points to this greater Passover to come. The Passover in Jerusalem, when the Son of Man is sacrificed for sinners. Jesus wants us to understand his death in light of Passover. Listen again to the author of Hebrews as he explains a comparison between the Mosaic sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice. This is in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. He says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We don't have time to unpack all that's there, but what I want you to see is that Jesus Christ offers himself as the lamb without blemish, and it's by his death offered to God through the Holy Spirit that our consciences can be cleansed from the guilt of sin. We can be cleansed and forgiven of our transgression against God's law because of what Jesus has done. And the Passover and the Old Covenant couldn't do this. So Jesus is the new and final Passover lamb. Jesus establishes a new covenant in his blood. And we'll celebrate that at the end of our service in the Lord's Supper. All who trust in the promises of God in Christ are redeemed from sin. We're redeemed from our slavery to sin and death. And we're welcomed into God's family. We're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God through the Lamb of God. In the passage we looked at last week, Jesus talked about how the Son of Man would come in glory on that last day. But that glorious coming has to come after this other kind of coming. This coming Jesus is telling us about here. So before the Son of Man comes in glory with his angels, first the Son of Man must come as the Passover lamb. And Jesus is telling us that's what's about to happen. The Son of Man is going to be revealed as the Passover lamb. And this is the good news of the gospel. Near the end of this passage, Jesus talks about this gospel. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed, this woman's act will be honored. This is the gospel he's talking about. Jesus is the true and final hope of sinners. But Jesus can only be the true and final hope of sinners as he is delivered over to sinful men and crucified. We can have no forgiveness apart from his sacrifice. The author of Hebrews told us that, right? This, this redemption can come because a death occurred. The death of the perfect lamb, the son of God. We can't enjoy the blessings of life in God's kingdom unless Jesus first pays the price for our sin. 
And so we take part in this new Passover, not by eating a lamb in a house covered with blood. And this Passover is not just for those who are physically related to Abraham. Christ, the Passover lamb, takes away the sin of everyone who believes in him. So Jesus calls us to trust that God forgives sin because of the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Trust that Jesus' blood covers you and protects you from the wrath of God, just like the blood of those lambs covered the Israelites and protected them as God passed through the land, killing the firstborn. The gospel begins then with the bad news that we're all sinners. Because of our sin, what we deserve from God is punishment. Because we've loved ourselves, we serve ourselves, because we've failed to worship Christ as we should, we deserve punishment from God. We deserve something that's even more terrible than what happened to those Egyptians when their firstborn sons were killed. And the only way to be delivered from that judgment, the only way to be covered, is by the blood of Christ. And so to be saved, we have to humbly admit that we need saving. Kids, do you know that you need to be saved from your sin? If you know that you've done wrong, and maybe you feel like it's impossible for you to stop doing wrong, you just keep doing the things you know are bad, I want you to see that's actually a good place to be. If you feel that guilt, that feeling like, man, I, I just keep messing up, that's God's kindness to you. He's showing you, you need me. You need Jesus. He wants you to know that Jesus died for people like you. People who have messed up and keep messing up. When we feel guilty, when we feel like all we do is bad, God tells us, look to Jesus, the Passover lamb. He is God's perfect lamb who was, who was crucified. And when he died, he died to pay for your sin. Believe that, believe that Jesus took your place on the cross when he died for sin. We all have to see that we can't clean ourselves up in order to come to God. We don't meet God halfway. The gospel isn't for people who've made themselves respectable or good enough. The gospel is for people who are stained with guilt, who are impure, who are disrespectable. That Jesus Christ is the spotless lamb. He was perfect. He was pure. He had no sin of his own. And yet he died on a cursed and bloody cross. And he did this to pay sin's price so that sinners can be saved, so that the unrighteous can be declared righteous, so that the impure and the dirty can be cleaned and purified. Salvation, then, the gospel message is for those people who know themselves to be sinners and, and unclean and who are trusting in Christ. Jesus offered himself up as the new Passover lamb for those kinds of people. So for those kinds of people, it's very good news that the Son of Man has come as the Passover lamb. Do you trust him? Is he your Passover lamb? Is he your substitute? Is he your hope? As we all think about that question, I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at how the people in this passage responded to the Son of Man as the Passover lamb. 
Maybe you'll see yourself in one of these four responses that we see here to Jesus. The first response I want us to look at is that of the chief priests and elders. This is the response of opposition. They oppose Jesus outright. We see this in verses 3 through 5. We see that they met at the high priest's courtyard to make a, a secret plan to arrest and kill Jesus. And the only reason they made this plan secretly is because they realized if they did it out in the open, the crowds who'd come to Jerusalem for Passover wouldn't allow them to arrest him. The crowds thought he was a prophet. And so they have to hatch this plan in secret. We see throughout Matthew, especially in these later chapters, they tried time and time again to sort of trip Jesus up to maybe get the crowds on their side, maybe expose Jesus as a fraud. But all their plans failed. And the more Jesus talks, the more the crowds see him as who he really is. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they have to come up with this plan to, to, to catch Jesus, to catch him by stealth, by, by deception, and then to kill him. Now, there is some irony in these schemes of the chief priests and elders, because they thought by arresting Jesus and killing him, they could thwart his plans. They could stop him and end his influence. But Jesus has already revealed he knows what's about to happen. He's come here to die. The Passover is coming, and the Son of Man must be delivered up and be crucified. He must be the Passover lamb. And so in scheming to kill Jesus, these leaders are unwittingly playing their part in God's plan. They're kind of almost like Moses and the elders of Israel back in Egypt. They're getting ready to sacrifice the lamb. It's just what the people need them to do. But these leaders have every intention of seeing Jesus crucified, but they don't believe that there's any need for a new Passover lamb. They think that a crucified Jesus will be good news, not because it saves, but because they see him as an enemy to God's law and to their traditions. And so they're opposed to Jesus. They're opposed to him because they want nothing to do with him. They want to completely push him away. Are you opposed to Jesus like that? Do you want to have nothing to do with him? Do you want to push him out of your mind and out of your life? I hope you learn from the example of these religious leaders that it's pointless to try and oppose God. You may think you know what you're doing. You may think you're clever and smarter than, than to believe in God, but you can't outwit Christ or God. You can't escape his power over you. You can't stop his plans. I mean, look at how foolish these leaders of Israel are. They plotted and schemed, even going so far as to pay one of Jesus' disciples to betray him. But God would use their hatred of Jesus to accomplish his work. And we know from the last passage, they will one day encounter the Son of Man in all his glory. And so will you. So you can try to put Jesus out of your mind. You can try to belittle and ignore his sacrifice. But you have no power over him. He is the crucified and risen Lord. This passage shows us there's no hope for those who oppose Jesus. Look at the foolishness of these religious leaders of Israel and don't follow their example. Don't oppose Jesus. 
So opposition is one way that people respond to the crucified Christ. The second response is what I'm calling willful ignorance. And I think this is actually what we see from Jesus' own disciples. Now to flesh this out, we have to see that the main thing that these disciples are responding to is the woman's, uh, the woman's lavish anointing of Christ with this expensive ointment or oil. It says that they're indignant in verse 8. It's interesting that this word indignance, this responsive indignance, is the same response that the disciples had when James and John were sort of vying for first place in the kingdom of God. They were indignant that James and John would do that. It seems like the disciples' indignance is almost always misplaced. It always reveals that they really don't get the picture here. I wonder if it's the same for us. Is our indignance very reliable? Often it's not. But they called the women's anointing of Jesus a waste. And they say, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus defends the woman and he commends her action. He says it's a, a beautiful thing that she's done. And he goes on to interpret her action by saying, well, by anointing him, she's preparing his body for burial. People who are crucified as criminals usually didn't get the proper embalming that the custom uh, would have been in those days. And so he interprets her action in this way. Now we'll get into more of why her act is beautiful in a moment. But for now, I want you to see that this woman seems to grasp something about Jesus and this moment that the disciples don't. She seems to grasp that Jesus' time is short. His crucifixion is coming and this thing that's coming, this thing that's happening in his crucifixion, is the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. You see, the problem with the disciples' response is not that giving to the poor is bad, and it's not that being a wise steward of resources is bad. Those are good things. The problem is they are failing to understand why Jesus came and the crucial moment that's before them. And that's why Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. He's not diminishing care for the poor, so he's not making a comparison between, you know, something good, anoint me, or something bad, care for the poor. That's not the contrast. The contrast is between someone that's going away, Jesus, and someone or a group of people that's not going away, the poor. He's drawing their attention to this momentous thing, this thing that's about to happen in time and history. The Passover is coming in two days, and the Son of Man will be crucified. Just for a thought exercise, imagine that you're back in ancient Egypt, and you're all gathered with the people of Israel. You as a people have witnessed these nine amazing plagues that God has brought against Egypt. Some of them you may have suffered through partially yourself. And Moses has just revealed what God is about to do in this final plague, the, the tenth plague, the, the angel of death passing through the land. The whole air around you is buzzing with this great work of salvation that God is about to do. And then Moses says, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And right as he says that, the Israelite next to you puts up his hand and says, hold, hold on a sec, Moses. Is that really the best use of these lambs? I mean, if we just wait for them to fatten up a bit, we could feed a lot more people with these lambs. 
The Egyptians would pay us more money if they're fatter and heavier. Now, if you were in that crowd and that fictional Israelite is saying that, you're kind of like looking down nervously like, man, this guy doesn't get it at all. Something momentous is about to happen. He just needs to sit down and shut up. The disciples have been following Jesus for years, hearing his teaching, ministering in his power. Peter was rebuked by Jesus for contradicting him when he said he had to die. And here they are. They're acting like our, our fictional, blockheaded Israelite, aren't they? Again, Jesus has repeatedly told them in Matthew he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. Even in verse 1, when this chapter is introduced to us, it says, or verse 2, Jesus said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up. To his disciples, the very disciples who now are missing the point. And that's why I call this willful ignorance. They've been taught that Jesus must die. But they seem to want to continue on as if he won't die. Perhaps they're hoping he can be avoided. That if they draw their swords at just the right moment, when the chief priests and elders come to arrest him, that they can, they can stop it. This is a huge error. Again, it's one of the things Satan tempted Jesus with. A kingdom without suffering. It is the satanic statement from Peter after Jesus first predicted his suffering in Matthew 16. Far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen to you. So what does it mean to be willfully ignorant of the crucified Christ today? Well, it could take many forms. What we know as the prosperity gospel is a form of this willful ignorance. This prosperity gospel promises your best life now and that you can follow Jesus and never suffer. If you just have the right amount of faith, and usually if you just give a little money to the prosperity gospel's ministry or the preacher's ministry, then you can be free from sickness and poverty. You can live a victorious life. And we see a similar kind of willful ignorance in the kind of casual approach to Christianity that we often see in kind of Southern culture. You know, that kind of casual approach that says we're Christians and all, but we don't get too crazy about it. You know, we make it to church when we can, we pray, we know that Jesus loves us and died on the cross for our sin, but we don't think following Jesus should be very inconvenient. As a matter of fact, we expect that if we follow Jesus, we should have a pretty comfortable and prosperous life. The casual Christian knows nothing of what it means to lay down their life for Christ's sake and the gospel. The casual Christian assumes that Jesus just approves of their lives, and they don't care to scrutinize their assumptions very much. These first two kinds of willful ignorance ignore the call to follow Jesus, who is the crucified Christ in humiliation and suffering. Another manifestation of willful ignorance is infrequent repentance. When we're willfully ignorant like this, we don't deal with our sin by acknowledging it and confessing it and rejoicing in God's generous forgiveness. We might ignore sin, or if we feel the guilt of sin, we might just try to deal with it by doing better and trying harder next time. But we don't often confess and repent. When we act that way, we're believing in some way or another that we can deserve to be in God's presence. 
We're willfully ignorant of the plain teaching of Scripture that God is near to the humble, that he forgives the brokenhearted. We're willfully ignorant of the joy and grace of repentance. Is repentance and joy in the gospel, is it an everyday part of your life? Or do you find reasons to ignore repentance and the joy of forgiveness? The willful, willful ignorance tries to possess some of Christ's blessings apart from humble faith in his atoning work. Some form of pride lays behind all willful ignorance. So in our pride, we don't want to be crucified, or we don't want a crucified and buried Messiah. We want an exalted Messiah, not a humble one. We want peace with God apart from blood-bought forgiveness of sin. Willful ignorance blasphemes Christ as the Passover lamb. Are there any ways that you're willfully ignoring the truth of Christ and him crucified? We should also see that willful ignorance of Christ, the Passover lamb, creates anemic, weak churches. These churches may confess the truth of the gospel, but they don't live it out. Do we have any of these blind spots in our church? Are there any places where the culture of our church is out of step with the gospel? I so appreciated Pastor Gio's prayer as he asked God to help us be a church where we use these relationships we have for his glory, where we, we serve one another and care for each other. One encouraging thing about asking this question about willful ignorance is that the disciples' uh, story is an encouraging one. They didn't remain in their willful ignorance. Eventually, they came to see the truth about the crucifixion. Some of them had to go through a very painful betrayal of Christ first, like Peter and all of them, in some sense, abandoned him, it seems. But we see how gracious God is, that he's, he's pleased to forgive people who were willfully ignorant, but repent of their willful ignorance and then go on to serve Christ. Most of these men, we think, died in preaching the gospel. God is happy to forgive those who have been willfully ignorant. So if that's been you today, then trust that Christ, the Passover lamb, died even for your willful ignorance when he died on the cross. The third response to Christ I want to look at in this passage is the response of apostasy. And that's, of course, the response of Judas Iscariot. Now, in some ways, Judas probably falls into these other categories as well. He was a disciple, and then he eventually opposes Christ outright. But it's worth considering him alone because he re represents someone who once professed Christ and followed him, perhaps even received baptism, but then goes on to publicly renounce Christ. Jesus, of course, had, Judas had followed Christ for years. He witnessed the miracles. He heard the teaching. He knew Jesus personally, but he turned on Jesus. He sold him out. It says that after he got those 30 pieces of silver, he immediately started looking for an opportunity to betray him. The tragedy of an apostate like Judas is that they seem to know exactly what they are rejecting. They have a lot of Bible knowledge, a lot of knowledge even of the gospel. Now for believers, it's hard for us to understand how this happens. And if you know someone 
who's who's gone away after professing faith, it's it's really devastating and it's disturbing. How can this happen? So apostasy should force all believers to examine what am I really trusting in? Is there some sense in which I'm trusting in myself? Some experience I've had, some doctrine I know, some some practice that I do? Are we trusting in our good works or our care for the poor? We have to see that our hope cannot be in any of our personal experiences or achievements. Our hope cannot be in ourselves. If having a significant religious experience could save you, Judas has us all beat. You can't beat spending three years with God incarnate and knowing him personally in terms of religious bona fides. Our hope must be in Christ and him crucified. Judas's apostasy is also important for us to see because it prepares us for the fact that we will know people like this. Sadly, throughout the history of the church, there have been apostates. It's sad and tragic and it is disturbing, but our faith in Christ doesn't have to be shaken when this happens. It's a known reality. So it should make us look at ourselves and turn to Christ, and it should shield us from having our faith destroyed when someone who once appeared to be a Christian renounces the faith. That's the third response, apostasy. So we've looked at opposition, willful ignorance, and apostasy. And the last response we need to examine is that of the woman and her beautiful act of faith. She anointed Christ's body for burial. Matthew says this ointment she used for anointing was very expensive. Mark says that its value value was 300 denarii, which was about a year's wages. So this was an extravagant display of devotion. Let's look again how Jesus speaks of what the woman did as he defends her from the disciples in verses 10 through 12. So Jesus is aware of their murmuring about her, and he says to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So Christ calls her action a beautiful thing. We could also just call it a good work, literally. Now, Christ didn't seek out this kind of extravagance, but he clearly sees that it's an appropriate way to acknowledge the moment. He's about to be arrested and killed and his body buried. The hour is drawing near. Whatever this woman intended by the anointing, Jesus affirms her as having the right response to the gospel. He goes as far as to say, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel, this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. This shows not only how much Jesus esteemed the woman's action in anointing him, but also shows, him that, shows us that he understood that there was a great future for the message about him. That after he died, he would be raised and the gospel would be proclaimed. His saving work would be announced. And every time it's announced, it's in, in, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this woman announced with it, honored because of her action. This woman's anointing of Christ honors him then as the crucified Savior. 
In her own way, we could say this woman is taking part in preparing the Passover lamb. She's not repulsed by the fact that Jesus is going to die for sin. For her, Christ's coming death is a reason to anoint him and to honor him. And so she ministers to Christ's body in his humiliation. And by doing so, she displays her faith in his work. She shows that she's ready to partake of Christ's feasts. Her anointing of Christ reveals her faith. Her faith in the Son of Man, crucified, buried, and resurrected. The Gospel of John tells us that this anointing actually took place before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he says that the woman who anointed Jesus was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. So you can look in John chapter 12 for this same story. So it seems that Matthew has organized his gospel thematically instead of strictly chronologically. Matthew also leaves this woman nameless. And it seems that Matthew wants to uh, put the focus on the goodness and the beauty of her action. Matthew is putting an exclamation point on the woman's response to Christ, the Passover lamb. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing to trust in Christ crucified. Christ delights in this trust so much that he wants this woman and her faith to be honored whenever the gospel is preached. The Son of Man is the Passover Lamb. He was led to the slaughter to bear away the sins of his people. And so we honor Christ this morning. We honor his atoning work by believing in it, by faith. We honor Christ by understanding the depths of our sin and by trusting in the complete sufficiency of his gracious and loving work on the cross. That is how you honor Christ. This woman honored Christ. She ministered to Christ by lavishing upon his body this precious, expensive ointment. It's clear from this outpouring of, of this ointment that there was nothing more precious to her than Christ crucified. Is that your testimony this morning? Is Christ crucified the most precious thing in the world to you? Do you see the love of Christ in this passage? He is eternal God. And yet the knowledge of our sin and misery draws out his compassion so that he willingly came to take our sin on himself and put it to death on his cross. He came for this very purpose, to be the Passover lamb who secures our forgiveness in his blood. He is the sure and certain hope of sinners. And do you see the grace and kindness of Christ in this passage? He saw the faith of this woman. He saw how she was attacked by his own disciples. And he goes out of his way to commend her faith as a beautiful thing. We have to think that this woman's action must have been somewhat awkward. That she, as Jesus is reclining at table, anoints his head. We don't know all the customs and practices of this day. Maybe this was something normal to do. But Jesus makes it clear, this woman's act is precious to him. This is what is precious to Jesus, your faith. Your faith is precious to him. He delights in the faith of his people. 
to him, to Jesus, to rely on him for salvation, to rely on his death is beautiful and good. That's what Jesus says is lovely. The faith of his people, even the awkward, bumbling, meager faith that we have, as long as it is faith in Jesus, crucified and resurrected, it is beautiful. Jesus graciously honors our faith in his work because our faith glorifies him. So don't try to be good enough for Jesus. Don't attempt to earn your way into his good favor by doing good works. The beautiful thing, the good thing, is to trust him. Throw yourself on him and hope in his work. This faith of the woman also teaches us not to despise the beautiful faith of others. This isn't the first time the disciples have shown their poor judgment in evaluating those who have come to Christ. Do you remember how they tried to prevent the people from bringing their children to Jesus and he had to stop them? There's a good and godly place for criticism and discernment, but it must be marked by humility and charity. In this case, the disciples, they thought they had the moral high ground in criticizing this woman, and yet they reveal that they've completely missed the point. Do you have eyes to see the beautiful faith of others? Do you see it in your brothers and sisters? Do you actively encourage them when you see their faith? This woman shows us what is beautiful. In the middle of a dinner party, she ministered to Christ by anointing him as her crucified Savior. How do you respond to the Son of Man who came as the Passover lamb? Are you opposed to him, trying to push him off stage? Are you willfully ignorant of the truths of the gospel and avoiding repenting and believing? Have you professed Christ once, but now find yourself drifting away and growing cold of the gospel? Or do you believe in him? Do you honor his sacrifice by faith? Come and feast on the Passover lamb. Trust in him as your savior and redeemer. Jesus graciously honor those who believe. So come to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you for eyes to see your goodness and grace in Christ. And we pray for sensitive hearts. If there is any hint of opposition or willful ignorance, if there is any hint of drifting away, Father, please make that clear to us. Use us in each other's lives to encourage each other to believe. Father, help us see the beauty of trusting in Jesus. Fill our eyes with his goodness and love. Jesus, we thank you that you came to be our Passover lamb, the spotless sacrifice that perfectly bears away our sin and satisfies God's wrath. We praise you that as we stand clothed in your righteousness, we can stand boldly in God's presence. And we thank you that even now you are working to whittle away the sin in our hearts. We pray for you to expose it and help us receive forgiveness with joy. In Christ's name, amen.